From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we continue our Committed Innovator series with Prady Agrawal. Prady joins us from Singapore, where he's the head of blockchain and AI ventures at Temasek, one of the world's leading investment firms. He talks with Eric Roth, a leader of McKinsey's innovation work globally, about how he is committed to using innovation to develop sustainable and accessible new technologies. And a quick reminder, you can find other episodes in our innovation series at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. And don't forget to follow the new committed innovator podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We'll include a link for you to follow in today's show notes. And now here's Eric. So now you, you sit in a unique role as you think about um, technology and innovation. Uh, you're an investor, and many of our listeners may not be familiar with Temasek. We want to help introduce uh, what Temasek is and why it's such a force for change uh, in around innovation technology. Temasek is very uniquely positioned. Several decades back, the Singapore stakeholders had the foresight to decide that they were in the business of governing the country and not in the business of manufacturing or running airlines and other such large strategic assets. If you actually go back to the foundation of Tamasek, it was a true source of permanent capital, a vehicle which allowed the growth of long-term businesses. As you track our history, we've now evolved into a large global firm where China, Southeast Asia, India, Europe, US are fairly represented across our portfolio. As we've embarked on activities, though, we have found increasingly that technology is becoming exponential. So the key focus area for us increasingly is how do we keep pace with that change in technology? How do we bring economic benefits, both from an investment return perspective, but also to our portfolio companies? So your, your title is blockchain and venture building. Let's talk about what that means coming from effectively an investment firm. So the effort actually started by now four to five years where there was a decision to look at more foundational and emerging technologies. You know, areas like artificial intelligence, blockchain. We had a long-standing interest in areas like cybersecurity. In blockchain specifically, we looked at the technology. We said, wow, there are so many game-changing ideas that you can actually bring to life here. And way back in 2019, the so-to-speak crypto winter, there wasn't actually that much we could go and invest in at scale. So we had a little bit of a moment where we said, why not take an unconventional approach? We'll continue investing. We'll pack some of the best founders. But wherever there are white spaces, why don't we catalyze some action? Uh, why don't we get involved more directly and help build some businesses? Uh, so that's how we ventured into this brave world of entrepreneurship ourselves. Yeah, so, it's, so in some ways, you're an orchestrator of capital and opportunities and bringing them together in a way that actually turns into something of value. I mean, our uh, CEO, uh, Dilan, likes to talk about catalytic capital. So how do we actually use our capital to bring change, to catalyze things that are needed. And I'll, I'll give you a specific example. So when you think of the internet today, some fantastic companies uh, who brought real delight to consumers. Equally, when you think about data and the silos that are developing around data, how do you actually break down some of those silos? How do you build new business models? It does need pretty resilient, rugged effort to actually get these across the line, right? So I think those are the kind of areas where, you know, we get pretty excited by on our side. How do you know where to where to where to start? Like, how do you pick the right spots to to make this these these investments? 
actually, we've got a bunch of creative people who are bubbling with ideas. How do we actually take some of these ideas? How do we validate the ideas? That's really where we start with, Eric, because it's very easy to fall in love with some of these big ideas. So the starting point for us actually is a capital plays a key role, but in order to bring these ideas to life, capital is not going to be enough. You need some of the best people, some of the best talent to coalesce around some of these ideas. Most importantly, is this what the market actually needs? Is this a solution which people would actually be excited about getting behind? Uh, so that's really increasingly our starting point when it comes to venture building on validating these ideas. How do you figure out whether you have a good problem you're trying to go solve? Blockchain is just in its infancy. Um, we all know what Bitcoin and all the other coins out there and tokens are, are doing, but but many would say the business model hasn't formed itself yet. So how do you even within a technology space like that, pick your spots and know that they're the, the right problems to solve and, and that you've got a solution that's got legs? Back in 2019, I recall sitting on a panel where one of the panelists said, this is a technology looking for a solution. And that's the most common critique of blockchain, um, especially on the enterprise side. The approach we've taken, therefore, is we looked at the ideas and we said, okay, which one do we think will be truly globally scalable? And we can get that across the line, as opposed to boiling the ocean on all possible ideas. And I'll, I'll use a specific example where it was a great combination of partners and capital coming together with talent and the methodology I've just spoken about. So payments. Now, if you look at cross-border payments, mm -hmm. um, literally in Singapore, and I'll use Singapore as an example, if I have to make a US dollar payment to anybody in Singapore, I initiate the transaction here. It actually gets routed all the way through New York uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and comes okay. back yeah. into a bank account of someone who's sitting right next to me. And if you just think about it in today's world, like, that's ridiculous, right? Like I could literally be talking to you sitting next to me, but if I have to send money to you, it has to route all the way through New York. Now, you could argue, listen, that works, but it works that it works. And then suddenly you don't know where the money is, right? So you and I could go for dinner, mm -hmm. have lots of conversation, but the money wouldn't have reached you, by the way, because <laughs> I had to go through these old technologies. But today the technology exists. And therefore we've spoken to dozens and dozens of customers to say, Actually, if the solution was available, would it solve your problem? Mm -hmm. We heard yes. We heard a resounding yes. And in that process, we also found at least a dozen or so other use cases. And what was essentially a research project called Project Ubin then became a commercially viable venture. But it took two years to actually from the ideation to making it a commercially launched entity. So it sounds like so. You, you identify a gap in the market. You then talk to presumably some customers and try to validate whether that's the case or not. And then, then what? How have you as a, as a capital investor thought about the sort of the incubation stage? You're exactly right. We identify a gap in the market. We then identify who has a role to play in bringing a solution to the market. Uh, we speak to those parties. We speak to the customers. Uh, we try and not make it about us as an investor. Uh, we try and stay focused. Don't promise that we can always achieve that on the problem statement. Once we've gotten enough validation, we then think about what's the most commercially viable path to bring it to market. And in touching on that question, you're actually touching on one of the biggest challenges. Like, how do you, as a group of individuals or companies, actually bring the best product and technology to market, right? Which is a completely different challenge in of itself, but no different actually from any other founder who's trying to set up a business. But for us, the validation is important. And then the incentive alignment 
with the partners or with our management teams to bring it to market is the next thing that we focus on. And once we're convinced about it is then when we actually bring a commercially viable entity. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So what evidence are you looking for that gives you the confidence that you're onto something in terms of an early investment in a proposition? The evidence we're looking for is that first and foremost, there is a large unsolved problem statement. Like it has to be a large opportunity. What we're not going to get behind is something which then gets sold for $50 million, $100 million, right? Like that's just not going to be worth the effort. But more importantly, what we're looking is multiple data points from customers on A, willingness to use it, and then B, willingness to pay for it. They may use it, but if we don't have actual revenue coming through any of these efforts, then that's not going to make sense. And then, of course, you know, if you ask me, the best, best validation we get on this is when we attract some of the big leaders, some of the talent who's chosen to get behind these ideas and actually take it to market alongside us. To me, that is the magical moment where I go like, wow, like, OK, this is not us just believing in an idea, but you actually have big leaders who are willing to completely shift their efforts to bring these to market. Because in most cases, you don't have the, the talent and resources to go build these. You rely on partners and other you know, ventures or, or collaborations to actually bring these things to market, correct? We're very thankful to many of our partners on the consulting side, mm-hmm. operating partners who are bringing these ideas to market. What we're now doing, though, Eric, is saying, how do we build systematic capabilities around this? Uh, because if we have mm-hmm. to do this at scale, like if you want to build not five or six, which is what we've done as Tamasic, across our AI and blockchain teams, if you want to do dozens of these over the years and solve some of these really tough problem statements, then we need proper in-house capabilities, which is the path we're now going down. So, so why do you think that the venture communities have not identified these same problems and scaled them? And instead, it re- requires you know, an entity like Tomasic, which has, you know, as we said, substantial amount of capital to invest and the teams like you're describing to come in and fill these gaps? Actually, Eric, I would not say people have not tried this. Um, If you look at a lot of the private equity firms and venture capital firms, they are increasingly getting behind ideas at a much earlier stage. In most instances, and we've done a few of these ourselves in our investing business, you literally just take a business plan or an idea from a founder and you back them very early. Where we're going one step further is, in spite of all the wonderful efforts from entrepreneurs backed by investors like us or venture capital firms, if there are still really difficult problem statements, imagine going to large companies and saying, let your data travel with your customers. I don't think it's easy to make that pitch or proposition to large tech companies or anyone who has data. That actually requires institutions like ourselves to come and say, okay, can we set up completely new disruptive businesses? So that's really the space we see ourselves playing in. We have a very simple logic. If a platform which is exciting and solves a problem exists, we just want to back them. We will not reinvent the wheel or coalesce other partners to come alongside us. Uh, but if something doesn't exist, and if it's going to take too long, we don't want to wait anymore. Why wait five years to bring something beautiful into the world if by our involvement it can happen faster and we don't have to control it? Um, you know, uh, We just want to play our role in bringing it to market. So what is your unfair advantage here as a capital provider? Our unfair advantage is a combination of things. So we are jokingly calling it the four Ps. We're still formulating it and we talk about it as purpose. There's a deep passion 
in getting involved in some of these areas, making the technology accessible. People, what we've been very intrigued to see is, again, the amazing talent that we are collectively ourselves and our partners able to attract behind some of these projects. And then, of course, our partners. You will see this in the next wave of businesses that we attempt to bring to market. Uh, We want to involve more and more community. It could be individuals, it could be institutions. And in that context, a particular unfair advantage we bring is trust in the first instance. When people interact with us, there is a natural trust. And I think that's almost like Singapore as a uh, extension of Singapore and Asia in particular. And then the last one is permanent capital. It's not just about being patient. Actually, patience can be misunderstood. So we actually don't talk about patient capital in this context. We talk about more upfront capital commitments, which is willing for the right set of economics to emerge and the right set of business models to emerge. So as a committed innovator with long-term capital, what are you looking for? Are these more resilient business models at early stages? Or are you just looking for the right team and or technology to partner with and to help scale? Resilience is one way I describe this. Um, Actually, when we're hiring now, we are more often than not looking for resilience. There will be so many ups and downs. I mean, literally building some of these through the COVID period, we've all pushed our mental health to the limit. And I have a real appreciation now to where actually founders uh, bring all that energy from and what they go through. So yeah, uh, commitment, uh, upfront commitment, and then resilience is what we bring to the table. How did you adapt your investments or support those businesses during a global pandemic? Will that go back to a certain normal state when we reach a different stage in the pandemic? Or do you see yourself working in this manner for a long time? So we see this as a hybrid model, Eric, where uh, we are no longer going to be able to put constraints on physical co-location. That natural tendency still exists, by the way, for many of us. But um, yes, you can build these virtually. The teams will have a lot more flexibility on location. It also removes hurdles of accessing talent. You know, there is only that much talent you can find in any one place and a bit of groupthink that comes with it. So yes, uh, uh, we see this as being increasingly virtual models. Uh, I'll give a simple example, right? We used to wait for a few weeks to do business meetings because you would want to travel somewhere. And, you know, you'd spend so much time scheduling these meetings. And now we find we actually make decisions much faster because you actually don't wait to physically go meet someone. We were having this funny conversation just last week where we were talking about, hey, are we going to be meeting somewhere in the US? And then I said, hang on, why wait? Why not just get on the phone tomorrow, right? Like as physical travel is beginning to come back. So yeah, I just think virtual interactions, business building, the barriers to entry, access to talent is meaningfully seeing a shift now. So this hybrid model you're describing, what does it exactly look like for an investment company such as yourself? You know, I think a degree of physical co-location and collaboration is invaluable. It needs to get our teams together just to get to know each other, um, to break some bread together, go for some meal, you know, have a few drinks, just socialize. That's invaluable. I, I think irrespective of which models we make coalesce around we will find every opportunity to get our teams together. And then collaboration. Like, listen, every time we get people in front of a physical whiteboard, the energy and the speed at which we can get things done is much faster than getting onto Zoom calls. Having said that, it doesn't have to be 24-7, which is really why I started by saying it's a hybrid model that we are working towards now. So today, when we are thinking about getting the best product and engineering talent for Web3 
based ventures or anything in the crypto or decentralized tech space, we're thinking, should we be in Austin? Should we be in Portugal? Should we be in Berlin? Should we have talent in India? Should we have talent in Singapore? Our options are no longer limited just to one place. How is Tomasic thinking about its investments in this area and its role in bringing blockchain models to life? We've been tracking the technology actually for, I would say by now, seven years is when I remember taking the first meeting with someone in the crypto world. So it was way back in 2014 or 15. So Tamasic, speaking more broadly, has been thinking about this for now four to five years and figuring it out more foundationally and how do we gain exposure and what do we actually do with the space? It's so new. And what was quite fascinating was as we've looked much deeper, we've really been sold on the possibilities. And again, uh, there's two aspects to this. There is the enterprise blockchain space, which I still think there are a limited set of ideas that make sense because it's not so much about the technology. It's more about getting otherwise competing commercial interests to collaborate on projects. And you'll know this from your work. It's difficult, right? And then, of course, there is more fundamentally the unstoppable, the censorship resistance. And I myself continue to get educated on this aspect, Eric. It's been a learning journey for us. As you think about decentralized technology uh, and where you're spending your time, where, where do you think the value is going to start to emerge from? If you look at the applications that have broken through, I would call out two areas. One is decentralized finance or DeFi, as it's broadly described. But even more fundamentally, money movement is already happening in these areas. And I'm, I'm, I'm not commenting on the KYC ML aspects. The proof that you can actually move money more efficiently and in a cost-effective manner, is something which is already happening. Right? So finance is a broad area. You're already seeing a lot of application. And there is going to be a big, big shift towards making sure we're complying with necessary regulations, uh, which takes time, right? But I think that's happening. Second area is uh, gaming. Uh, this is something we were very passionate three and a half, three years back and can be very passionate about. And if you think about the folks who are truly native to the space and the ability to, for the first time, actually have digital ownership of assets. That's something we are very excited by. Even when you talk about NFTs, which is the favorite topic <laughs> as it relates to blockchain nowadays, we focus more on the what is unique to that entire phenomenon. If you think about land titles, if you think about any non-virtual assets, uh, our own work that we've been doing with Singapore Exchange on a business called Market Node. In effect, there's actually no difference, if you ask me, between bringing good old OTC asset classes like fixed income onto this new digital infrastructure to your baseball cards or your cricket cards or anything that you want to own and want to say it's uniquely yours. My son, for example, is obsessed with Pokemon cards. I actually think that if he had them in digital form and he could keep trading those under supervision, and if he were to sort of look 20, 30 years later, he might have a pretty unique collection and he may be proud of it. And it may not be just linked to value, but just the uniqueness of what he has. So these are assets which are just being represented and you can then transfer title. Yeah, that's the way we see it. What you're describing is what I would frame as we're replicating the physical world in a digital way. But is that really the true opportunity with, with blockchain or NFTs? Because I, in my view, I think that's step, step one. Step one is we tend to take everything we know in the physical world and try to replicate that in the virtual world. That's just our natural tendency. Having said that, there are unique digital assets that we expect to come up. 
which don't necessarily need to be linked to the physical world. And I'll, I'll again, I'll use my kids as an example. So I was speaking to my son and saying, okay, I'm going to start an allowance for you. And I was absolutely appalled with the idea he came up, which is he wanted to use all of it to buy some digital skins in some video game. And, and then my first reaction was no. And then I said, but listen, if that's how he wants to spend it, it's actually much lesser than I spend on a meal with him. So why am I deciding? But to him, he's already native. And I can't imagine those possibilities of what the digital asset world is doing. And for him, the other day I walked into his room and he was chatting with his friend. And I was like, so how are you chatting? And he was chatting to his friend from within a game, right? And, and, and that's the new world, the brave new world. So for us in this older generation, you know, Anthony, my team is always educating me, you know, controlling his frustration when I don't fully understand these concepts, right? We can't imagine these words. So I think there's a new world emerging, Eric, which you and I may not fully appreciate. We will want to replicate land, but there are these new digital assets that are coming up. So as you look back across the current decentralized technology world, where, where are your favorite spots where you're seeing models emerge? Yeah, so for us in the decentralized world, more broadly described and not limiting ourselves with jargon or connotations, we are deeply passionate about breaking down data silos. So for us, our work that we're doing with companies like Affinity, with Good Worker, with Trastana, deeply passionate about that, right? So just breaking down data silos, making data more portable. Open networks is something, again, we're very, very passionate about. So all the work, again, at Patior, at MarketNode, work that we're doing on the AI side with one of our companies in Stealth Mode. Even the work we did with the DM Association, truly crypto-native efforts would be, again, Anything to do in the finance area, gaming, you heard me speak about that passionately earlier, uh, big, big believers in. We also see a number of other emerging categories like social, which can be very, very powerful. Do you think the regulatory environments around these emerging technologies are at pace with the technology? Or do you see regulators catching up? Or do you see regulators taking action to slow down the technologies so that they can appropriately ensure the safety and trust and and, and sort of viability of them? The regulators are catching up very fast. Um, I think they have a very, very open mind to the possibilities here, but they have a self-stated objective of also protecting consumers. Having said that, I think some of these technologies bring a completely new paradigm. So it's a pretty steep ask to actually understand these technologies and new business models again. So yeah, but we see generally regulators being quite constructive and catching up very quickly. And hopefully, I think in the next two to three years, it won't be a discussion on whether you apply these tech, but it's more about what are the actual intersection points and how do regulators actually get comfortable with the scale at which some of this would be applied is I think the conversation where it's shifting to. As you think about these technologies and, and sort of what it takes to be successful in building businesses around them, are there distinct lessons that are different than what it takes to build a business in sort of the, the old world, if you will, the classical venture world? It's boiling down to one word, people. Every challenge uh, or every roadblock that we've faced is around people. I mean, I think we are undergoing a massive repricing of technology-related talent as we speak around the world, without exception, depending on location, because capital has become truly fungible. Assets are being priced now on a global basis. I would answer your question by saying a lot of it is actually domain-specific or functional-specific. We actually don't see an issue per se being able to access talent in different locations. I do think increasingly finding alignment with the talent on 
what are the problems that we're trying to solve? Where are we headed as businesses? I think that is the key. I, I think that's a big difference from the past where you could arguably throw a package at someone and then convince them to cross the line. That's not enough anymore, right? I think people people need to understand, you know, are they truly aligned with what you're building? Where are you headed? And have to continue to believe in that. And then I think people will be willing to commit for the long term. And that is a consistent theme we are finding, whether we're hiring in China, Singapore, broadly Southeast Asia, India, Europe, and a little bit in the US now on our side, right? That's a consistent theme across. Is now the time for Singapore investors and Asian investors in terms of rebalancing where innovation and venture comes from? Or do we still have some years before we'll see that shift away from traditional venture and and innovation hubs to the new ones? Generally speaking, I actually think it's going to be very organic, Eric. I actually don't think you'll have the traditional hubs anymore. I, if you would ask me to have a crystal ball and look at like 25 or even 2030, you would find a lot more depth in a lot of the hubs that actually exist, whether that's greater China, Singapore, India, of course, you know, different parts of the world. Actually, I think you see a lot more depth there. I mean, look, look, at, look at the US, right? The number of people who moved away from the valley into different parts of the US, some as a sign of protest, some as just wanting a different place to innovate out of, whether it's Austin or other parts of the US. So I think it'll be much more evenly distributed. We think of it as an open ecosystem. We have to earn our stripes to be able to attract partners at scale. And that's slowly beginning to happen. I had a moment when I went into the uh, Affinity and Tristana offices in Singapore and somebody actually asked me, am I looking for someone? And I burst out laughing. And it was a great moment because, you know, we've grown and uh, not everyone's known uh, each other. I think a few years down the line, I think people will ask, so, do you, so, you know, is the Masik interested in something? And we hope to have played some role in creation and many more sources of capital, many more purposeful people coming together and creating things. So uh, hopefully, you know, when we're doing this 10 years later, no one's talking about us. They're just talking about the ideas. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate all of your comments, your perspectives. Your, your visionary description of, of where Tomasic and your efforts are going. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this conversation at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. We look forward to having you join us again soon for the next episode of The Committed Innovator.